Welcome to Life at the Ballpark. On this episode, you'll hear stories from a Hall of Fame sports writer who's covered a legendary franchise for 50 years through seven World Series and 20 postseasons and has built a relationship with some of the team's biggest stars, but not without some tough conversations. The only time I seem to interview him was when he'd blown a save. He said, now why is that? He said, I've blown maybe two or three saves out of 25 or 30. Where were they at the times I got him out? The other 26, that's not the way you should be doing your job. And he was right about that. He was correct, and I was not correct, and I never forgot his polite but firm rebuke of how I was doing my job at that point. Welcome to Life at the Ballpark, sharing stories from players, managers and coaches, writers and broadcasters about their lives around baseball, from the sandlots to the big league ballparks. Hi, I'm John Frost, and my guest today is the commish, Rick Hummel, who was inducted into the writer's wing of the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2007. Thanks, Rick, for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Of course. Well, it's good to see you again. Good to see you. Good to be seen. (laughs) To put it in perspective, I guess, I've retired from a full-time job at the newspaper after 51 years at the Post-Dispatch, but I wanted to keep my hand in a little bit. I wanted to go to spring training, and I needed some jobs to defray some of the expense of being at spring training. I'm not on scholarship anymore, so I'm working for like four or five different vendors, websites, and I'm starting to do like a weekly or so piece for the Post-Dispatch in the next couple days that will start. So... I am retired, and I'm not retired, but I'm hopefully, it's been a lot of work down here. I might have taken on too many more bosses than I needed to be working for, but during the season, maybe it'll be easier. I won't have to be on my own dime anymore. I just have to go to Bush Stadium. I won't have to spend, you know, 32 nights in a hotel. So, and so uh, I'm looking forward to that, but how it will go, I don't know. Well, that sounds like a pretty good plan. Yeah. I mean, the plan has changed along the way. I didn't figure I'd get involved in so many different endeavors, but people had some interest in wanting to use me, so I wasn't going to say no at this stage. I mean, they're not always going to call you, you know. It's nice to be remembered. Yes, yes. I mean, I don't plan to be doing this when I'm 90, but I'm not quite 80 yet, so I can I can hang in a little bit longer. I did a podcast recently with Bill Mercer, the former uh, Texas Rangers announcer, Dallas Cowboy announcer, White Sox announcer, and he's 97 years old. Good for him. I don't plan to be doing any writing at 97, or 87 maybe, but, uh, but I'm only 77, so this will be a kind of a trial period this year. If I find that it's too much for me, I'll have to back it up a little bit next year. You know, people understand I'm not, I didn't sign a lifetime deal with anybody here. Well, if it gets too expensive for you, just keep in mind that we have an extra bunk bed in the kid's bedroom. Oh, thank you very much. You're very kind. <laughs> How far away from the ballpark are you? <laughs> well, within walking distance. I know my priorities when finding a house. I like your style. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good. I like that. Well, let's get your take on what you've already seen in spring training. There have been a few rule changes. What is what is your take on the rule changes? Well, I've noticed that the pitchers and hitters too, but mostly pitchers who had worked under the pitch clock in the minor leagues are much more ready for this than the big leaguers are. I mean, the big leaguers are, are bamboozled by this a little bit. They'll get used. They have to get used to it. Those are the rules. But the minor leaguers, who had a chance to make the team, have enhanced those chances by being able to pitch quickly and get outs and 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 not have ball ones assessed to them. You know, uh, so that part I've noticed. In a perfect world, if you're going to have this rule, and which I don't like anyway, but 
I'd like to see it relaxed for the last three innings of a close game. Now, defining close maybe is three runs or fewer after six innings. If you get six innings in, in an hour and 45 minutes, we're already ahead of the game, you know? So the last three innings take an hour. That's still two hours and 45 minutes. That's all right. So I don't want to see a game decided by a walk-off umpiring call on either the hitter or the pitcher not being ready to either hit or pitch. That's not right. You play three hours for that. It's different if a guy has the ball go through his legs and you play three hours to get that point. That's baseball. This is not baseball. Yeah, I was wondering about that. You know, the other day in the Red Sox game, the game ended on a uh, pitch clock play where the batter was ruled out and the game was ruled over. Well, the the purpose of the rule is to speed up the game. Well, that ended the game. And I'm just thinking, what is going to happen if this isn't a big postseason game? I mean, that would be a bigger controversy than the Don Dinkiger play in 1985. Oh, forever. I mean, uh, it was good for the umpires to set an example for that. I I don't mind them calling it then, because if you can't call it then, you can't ever call it, But uh, because it didn't mean anything, really, other than the game ended. Well, the game was going to end after nine innings anyway. It's a spring training. You're not going to, it wasn't going to be any tenth inning. Unless Tony La is managing, and then you're going to play one more. Well, yeah, even if the umpires aren't there. But um, So I, I don't know that I'd like not to see it happen later. Or maybe you turn the other way and by a second or two. You know, look at the NFL. How many times have you seen the clock go down to zero and the ball hadn't been snapped yet, and they let them get by with the play? That happens about once or twice a game. So... There's got to be some flexibility here somewhere, and maybe there will be. Bigger bases, I don't have a strong opinion on that. I think it gives the runner. You mean the pizza boxes that are out on the field? You know, it gives the runner, especially a runner at first base, a chance to dive back in where the first baseman can't block him off the bag. No first baseman is that big, you know, to cover up the whole bag. And do they get there faster on a steal attempt? I guess if they dive head first, they do. If they have those oven mitts on, then, you know, they, they put their fingers out there. But that, that can't save that much time. Maybe I asked Ozzy Smith about this the other day about did it make it easier to turn a double play? And he says, no, nah. he says, I was always conscious of ticking the bag with my foot anyway. And I, I mean, I said, is there more room to get it? He says, yeah, but that's not a big deal. So I'm going to say it's not a big deal. Well, we've already seen the strategy this early in spring begin to change as the catchers start throwing more down to first base to try to pick off the runner. Well, Contreras, you know, the new Cardinal catcher is a lot like Molina was. He liked to throw behind the runners anyway. So this is not anything new for him. So that might actually benefit them, and especially with a guy like Goldsmith, who's always alert that there's going to be a possibility of a throw down there. Sometimes the first baseman is kind of thinking about his last at bat, and then the ball goes in right field. Do you have any thoughts on the shift? I don't like it. I don't. I don't like it being legislated against. Isn't it up to the hitters to try to find the open spot in the field? I mean, they weren't all brought up from age six or seven to be pull hitters, were they? Maybe they are now. And, and but I like that. You know, I don't. Like Machado was playing right field a lot of times for San Diego. I'm not sure. I mean, a third baseman making catches at the warning track and right center field. But I'd rather just see them have the shift and and just be better at it. I mean, Carpenter, once he got to Yankee Stadium last year, he he determined that they couldn't shift him into the stands, you know, so he hit a bunch of home runs. (laughs) And that beat the shift and got him another contract with San Diego. Now, he'll do better because the shift will be outlawed against him. But I just... There's a way for hitters to to guide the ball somewhere. You presume that when the shift is on, that the pitchers are always throwing the ball where they're supposed to. That's not the case. They pitch no hitters all the time. So there's a way that the hitters could still function, bunting, hitting a dribbler to third base, 
you remember all the balls that line drive hitters, left-handed hitters hit to short right field or even to medium right field. But you don't remember the ones that dribbled off the end of their bats, you know, against a shift where nobody could defense it. There's been too many rules implemented into baseball, including that ridiculous man on second in the 10th inning. If you want to do that, let them play a couple innings. Let them play at least one extra inning. Let's say play the 10th normally, and you do it in the 11th. You know, if, if people, if a game is that interesting, they're not going to leave. You know, no matter what you do. I mean, you don't have to entice them to stay. They're then they're in it now. You know, every we can we can get them, or you have you have a guy that could be the losing pitcher that never put anybody on base. Well, how is that fair? <laughs> As the agent is is helpless to defense that. <laughs> we had a situation in a game here where it was an extra innings and they put the runner on second. Then the next guy came up and they walked him intentionally without a throw. So we had runners on first and second base. And not one pitch had been thrown. I walked intentionally. That's pretty good. Did that strategy work, by the way? Uh, I, th- I think they scored. <laughs> now, you, you, the smarter baseball people know that you have to basically score two runs in the top of an inning if you're the visiting team because one's not going to be enough. you got the guy second for the other side coming up right in a few minutes when you're done hitting. So you might not see... The bunt play used as much by the visiting team as you would, let's say, the game, the home team retires the visitors, and now it's 5-5 five to five in the bottom of the 10th, and you got a guy at second base. Well, you can bunt him over then. You only need one. You don't need two or three. I love that. Like Oliver Marmol hates sacrificing, so I'm always on him about that. And every time he puts a bunt play on, he looks up to the press box to see if I'm paying attention. Or <laughs> well, I wanted to take the opportunity while visiting with a Hall of Famer to talk about two other Hall of Famers. These are guys we've lost recently. And I wanted to talk to you about uh, Tim McCarver and Bruce Suter. Tell me your memories of Tim McCarver. Well, I first met him when I was covering the team in the 70s. He was on his, his second go-round at that point. He'd been traded to Philadelphia and a couple other teams he played with, Boston, I think. And, and, and he came back in his, well, mid to late 30s at that point, And he was kind of a backup catcher because Simmons was catching then and he played first base a little bit and was kind of a veteran presence on they had some pretty good teams then but they didn't have quite enough to beat out the Pirates were a real good team in the early 70s in that division and the Mets you know of course won a division in that in 1973 so I got to know him that way and then I got to know him better as a broadcaster with well shoot Fox ABC you know he did them all and um he was engaging, you know. Uh, I knew him working with Jack and Joe Buck, and um, very entertaining. He always had a story for you. He was like the only person in baseball history to be like the personal catcher for Bob Gibson and Steve Carlton on different teams. <laughs> you know, Carlton was with the, the Cardinals for, they were all together at the same time in the late 60s when they had their World Series clubs. And then McCarver extended his career probably by two or three, four years by being Carlton's personal catcher when Carlton was really good. And if Carlton said, I want McCarver catching, I mean, Bob Boone didn't seem to mind, and so the Phillies didn't seem to mind. You know, <laughs> you know, they won divisions. They won a World Series in 83. Uh, I think Tim was gone by then, but uh, I knew his, his health hadn't been good the last year or so, but it's always a gut punch when you hear that he, you're not going to see him anymore. But uh, he got the, lot, the most out of a... A wonderful playing career and an even better broadcasting career. 
He played in four decades. Yeah. yeah he got a, little, a couple games in in 1980. And uh, I think that number of players is probably under 10 that's, that have achieved that. I couldn't tell you how many. I've seen maybe even lower than that, but let's say under 10. And as a catcher for most of those years, that's pretty amazing. Tim McCarver had a special relationship with Bob Gibson, didn't he? Well, he can make Gibson laugh, which was... I could do that too, by the way, but in a different fashion. He can make Gibson laugh, but Gibson would only laugh when the joke was at McCarver's expense. You know, he, he would turn the tables on him. <laughs> so McCarver would have to laugh also, but, you know, the, the famous visit to the mound and Gibson would say, what are you doing out here? The only thing you know about pitching is you can't hit it. <laughs> and he, he may have said that once, may have said it 50 times for all we know, but, but they had a, a certain symmetry there. And did Tim ride Bob's coattails a little bit? Well, sure, but that's okay. He knew what he was doing. He knew what put, pitches to put down there. They didn't need any pitch clock in those days either, by the way, when most two guys were together. It was, it was 0-2. It was 0-3 right away. I didn't mess around with 1, 2, 2, 2, 3, 2. No, 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 no. 01, 02, 03, sit down. <laughs> I heard a story that Tim McCarver had set up Steve Carlton. He had the best slider in baseball. And Bob Gibson quickly reprimanded him in saying the best left-handed slider in baseball. Well, there was a group of people around, and Gibson had to kind of push him out of the way to get to the front of the, of the group to tell him that, you know. And, and he, he was right. Uh, they were both right, it turns out. But, but it wasn't like there were just three people or four. There was a whole group of people there and said, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Now, yes, best left-handed slider. <laughs> That's great. What other stories do you remember about Tim McCarver? He, um, he wasn't afraid to, to say what, what he meant. He got in trouble once in a while with that. I mean, you know, he, he got into a hassle with Deion Sanders one time when and Sanders poured something on him or something in a celebration. And I mean, Sanders was a two-sport star at that point. Well, I wouldn't say he was a star in baseball. He was a two-sport player at that point. He was a star in football. And he played for the Braves a little bit, too. And McCarver took out after him. You know, he didn't, it didn't bother him. He didn't, he didn't back up from anybody. But he would be your closest friend if you, if you needed him to be. He, he would listen to anything, any problems you had, you know. And, and, and uh, he was just an extremely likable guy. And his skills were obvious. Now let's talk about Bruce Souter. I know you and Bruce had a very close relationship. When he first got to St. Louis, this had to be 1981. And I hadn't been on the beat full time very long at that point, just two or three years, four years maybe. And he pointed out to me very politely but directly one day that the only time I seemed to interview him was when he'd blown a save. He said, now why is that? He said, I've blown maybe two or three saves out of 25 or 30. Where were they at the times I got them out? The other 26, that's not the way you should be doing your job. And he was right about that. I mean, it just, it struck me that people want to know more about the blown save than the save achieved, but but I, he was correct, and I was not correct, and I never forgot his polite but firm rebuke of how I was doing my job at that point. Then we kind of fast forward to when he went into the Hall of Fame in 2006, finally, and I covered him. You know, I, of course, went up for the ceremony and stuff, and then in, in 2007, I got the award for the writing excellence. It was called the J.G. Taylor Spink Award, but we can't call it that anymore because J.G. Taylor Spink was not the... Well, never mind. He had had some things in his closet, let's put it that way. And uh, so maybe Souter could 
tell I was nervous. I don't know. I, don't, I didn't think that I was, but I, maybe I was. And we were all had formed at the Otisaga Hotel in Cooperstown to go to the Clark Sports Center where there was going to be an outdoor ceremony for the Hall of Fame. I follow him onto the bus, and he sits in a seat and pats the one next to him and says, you're sitting with me here. And, and he, he just he talked to me as we went along trying to just relax me. And it, I, I won't forget that. I think it helped. I thought I was prepared, but I was still pretty nervous. And he just he just talked like there was nothing going on. Now, other times, he was an instructor in spring training a couple years, minor league instructor, a little bit in the big league camp. And there was a mini strike or, or lockout, like an 80 or 90, 1990, I think it was, something like that. And so he had no, nobody to coach. He was just kind of hanging around, and he decided we should go out for cocktails in the afternoon. I said, Bruce, I got to write here, man. <laughs> he said, oh, no, just give it a couple of them. And, you know, you got two hours, three hours, four hours. Went, and I was, I was in no condition to, no, had no interest in writing anything at that point. But So it was all his fault. I, I, I couldn't say no. I had, he had plenty of information for me. And uh, it just it was a matter that it was not achieved in the clubhouse. It was achieved in some saloon somewhere. Where I, <laughs> but he would always, every year, he would call me, you know, a couple, three times and say, how's the team doing? And, and, and he wanted me to call him on my own and let him know how the team was doing, too, because he, he liked to follow him. And he always enjoyed coming back for the Hall of Fame ceremonies, riding around the, the track and so forth. And it was too bad. I do not believe he was there for the 40th reunion of the 82 team last year. In fact, I'm pretty certain that he wasn't, which was kind of a tip-off that maybe things weren't going very well. And he was he was missed, you know. The people, you know, they would yell his name, Bruce, like they did Lou Brock before that, and and uh, and now Lars Newt Barb, and so that that his his death hit me really hard because some of these guys you are acquaintances of, and some of these guys are your friends. And he was my friend, you know, a good friend, and uh, we could insult each other, you know, and, and get by with it. And that's those are the kinds of things you remember from. These guys, I, I, I don't care if they were good players or not, just so they were they good people. And he was. But I'm, I was privileged to get to know him for, from 1981 until, well, 2023. And I ran into Bruce Souter uh, right back here, right, right in the backfields uh, during a fantasy league game. And I can remember coming up to him, and of course he was a very gregarious, very outgoing guy, and introducing myself to him after he had been inducted in the Hall of Fame. And he told me two things about that that I did not know. One was he was the first person ever inducted into the Hall of Fame that never started a game. And secondly, he was the first person ever elected in the Hall of Fame with a beard. Well, the first part I knew. The second part I hadn't thought about. So those some of those older players didn't have beards either. I, I might quarrel with that second take, but the first the first take I know for sure that he was the first one not to have started a game because there weren't many relievers in anyway, and the ones who were like Fingers and Gossage they had started a lot of games in their careers, Eckersley, and there was only three or four other guys that were, were reliever types mostly that are in the hall. But that beard thing, I'm going to have to look that up a little bit. Yeah. Well, this has been so fun for me. Rick Hummel, Hall of Famer, thank you for sharing about your life at the ballpark. Good to see you, my friend. Well, thank you, John. I always enjoy this. 
Tune in each week for a new episode. I hope you'll subscribe and share with your friends. Life at the Ballpark is produced by Jim Governale. Project manager is Paul Adams. I'm John Frost, sharing stories of life at the ballpark. Thank you.